Hello and welcome to Creator Talks. I'm your host, Christopher Calloway. This is the interview show dedicated to writers, artists, editors, colorists, letterers of comic books. My guest today is Miles Gunter. He is the writer and creator of Dark Fang, being published by Image Comics. It is coming out on November 15th, so you're getting this interview early, so there's still time to act. And after hearing this in-depth interview, I think you'll be interested in adding this to your pull list for November's comics. The art is by his longtime friend and collaborator, Kelsey Shannon, and I've read the first two issues, and it's very good. I think you'll like the story about Vala, a vampire. But Vala is not your average vampire. She was a fisherwoman who became a vampire and stayed at the bottom of the sea, protected from the sun's devastating rays. But she returned 100 years later, disturbed by pollution entering the ocean. She didn't know what to call it, what this dark matter was, but it was oil, oil from oil rigs. So while this is a fun comic, a great vampire adventure, it does address certain issues about our ecosystem and the danger that it's in right now. Miles and I both discussed that, not to be preachy about conservation and ecology and pollution and recycling, but just our thoughts on it, because it does play a part in the book. Although, like I said, it's not a preachy book. It's a lot of fun. Listen for yourself, see what you think. This is a nice meaty conversation that I have with Miles. I think you'll really enjoy it. So without further ado, my interview with Miles Gunter on Dark Fang, here now on Creator Talks. Miles, welcome to Creator Talks. Hi, thanks for having me. How you doing? As we're recording this, it's Friday the 13th. I am doing well, yeah. So I'm trying to refrain from making the um, Friday the 13th sound, but uh, you know it may slip in at some point, so I'm just giving you fair warning. So. <laughs> oh, have you ever taken a defensive driving class? No, I, uh, I mean, I took driver's ed. Uh, way back when um and i actually got in some trouble and i uh i dropped out of driver's ed and i i uh i took it again it's kind of it's a long time ago it's kind of foggy but yeah (laughs) okay well we have this thing here in delaware i guess other states have it too advanced defensive driving and i've taken it before now you can do it online the thing is i took it three years ago you renew it every three years i took it yesterday i thought let me get this out of the way three hours Oh my God. Three hours because, well, my wife warned me because she took it the day before me. There's a timer now on each screen that's two minutes. Even like, this is your discount that you'll receive, blah, blah, blah. And you sit there and you watch the screen for- Wait for the whole test? Yes. For the whole, it would have been an hour and 15 minutes. Uh And when when the screen popped up, congratulations, I was like, thank God. (laughs) It was just so long. Yeah, that's weird. Yeah. I wanted to talk to you about Dark Fang, but there are two areas I'd like to talk to you about first that tie into your latest work. One is vampire lore, and the other is pollution of our oceans. And both topics are of interest and import to me. But let me start with your education. Uh, You went to the Graduate School of Social Research in Manhattan. Yeah, the new school for social research. And I wanted to know about that experience, what you learned, and did it change your view of society's role as a steward of the earth? I don't know if I would go that far. Uh, I went to a, uh, not to say that I didn't enjoy my experience at the new school. I went to a performing arts high school uh, where I grew up in Dallas. And that was kind of 
Um, I was a theater major there, and that was sort of where I got my first taste of writing. I took a um, a couple of playwriting classes, and uh, so that was kind of the thing that first got me interested in writing. And then I went to uh, after high school, I went to um, art school in Savannah, Georgia, to the Savannah College of Art and Design, and uh, which was at that time uh, in the early '90s. This is like '93, '94. Uh, they were one of the first schools in the country to uh, offer a degree in sequential art. I was at that time. I was a you know, I was a vi- what was called a video major. They didn't really have a film program. I started taking some of these these sequential art classes, and I just really got into the program there. And I, I befriended a bunch of uh, fledgling comic artists, and I started doing like these little eight-page comics. I ended up dropping out of art school and uh, moving to New York, living in Brooklyn, and working there and I started taking night classes at the new school to finish my degree. I was in art school for like three years and I finished the rest of my degree uh, at night school and uh, I mean it was it was more just the experience of living in New York. That was probably the biggest thing that came out of uh, that time as opposed to the new school itself. Um, but it, but it was a, you know it was a great experience. I don't regret that time at all and I mean New York has changed so much um, since that time. It's a completely different place. The cost of living has gone up like, I don't know, 300% since then, maybe more. I'm not sure. But that was kind of, you know, that was kind of my uh, my crash course into comics. I, at that time, around 97 or so, I got my first credit through a uh, company called London Night Studios. And it was with my buddy, uh, Jason Burroughs who is uh, starting a run on Moon Knight right now. That was kind of like my first uh, my first experience with comics. And I, I ended up getting a gig with Vertigo, with a Vertigo anthology called Weird, Weird War Tales. So that was kind of like my first break. Wow, well, Vertigo is a great break. That's a great start. Yeah, I got really lucky. And uh, I mean, I was in this anthology with like Jim Lee and Garth Ennis and Paul Pope and Bruce Jones. And I mean, I was just completely out of place, but it was, I mean, it was an incredible gig. I learned so much on that, on that job. And, and that ended up leading me to, uh, doing a book with image, uh, doing a mini series with them via my friend, Mike Oming, who I befriended around that time. And he, uh, he was just starting work on powers um, with Brian Michael Bendis. And so I, I befriended him around that time. And yeah, that was just kind of like my first, uh, my first experience with comics. And I, I did, uh, I did a book with Mike and an artist called Kelsey Shannon, who Mike hooked up with via the internet. I can't remember exactly, um, how he came into the picture, but, uh, he was somebody who had, had been doing animation work, you know, had done some comics prior to that, but had done a bunch of animation stuff on this movie. I think it was called Jimmy Neutron. And then he switched back over to comics. So at that time, he was getting really into... That was when you were first starting to see comic artists using Photoshop and you know, kind of bringing computers into the making of comics. So Kelsey was, was an early adopter. He wasn't the first person, obviously, but he was an early adopter of that technology. He does everything digitally and... So we did that book together, and then that that led me to doing 
other projects with Image. I did a book called NYC Mech with uh, Ivan Brandon, who's done several projects with Image since then. Most re- most recently, Drifter and uh, Black Cloud. And Andy McDonald, who's been doing a bunch of work for DC, he's been doing JLA and uh, a bunch of other stuff. I, I did several things with Image, and I, I did a book with Victor Santos, an artist in Spain. Then I stopped making comics for a while, and I uh, I started going after the shiny object that is screenwriting. And uh, I spent a number of years pursuing that, and actually pursuing a project that dealt with environmental themes i i had written this action movie that was about the energy crisis was very much like this beat em up you know pg-13 uh action movie and i got this actor attached to the project i wrote it specifically for him and uh we took it out to a bunch of people uh and he was really into it and i got a couple of directors involved and i you know i jumped through all the hoops you know that you have to do when you're uh when you write a spec script and I just I kept getting left at the altar. Things kept falling apart at the at the last minute, and this was like a four year process. I mean, just it was completely crazy. But uh, it, you know, as I said, it kept falling apart. But eventually, I just kind of got disillusioned with all that. Uh, but I kept writing. Decided that I wanted to come back, you know, and make comics with Image. I mean, during that, you know, during this time, Image was blossoming into this whole other company from my early experiences with them. And uh, I saw that, uh, you know, my buddy Ivan was having a really great experience with them. So uh, Kelsey and I had been playing around with a few different things. And uh, I had written an idea in one of my notebooks about a vampire um, trying to do something about climate change and going up against the oil companies and, and all this. And this was probably back in like 2011, I think. I found that idea again a couple of years ago and I just started thinking about it more because, you know, this, the problem hadn't gone away, you know, and it got worse. You know, you'd have these, these terrible storms. And in the back of my mind, I, you know, I still had this, this urgency to try to create some kind of work around what was happening in the real world. And I, you know, I talked to Kelsey about it. I pitched it to him and he was really into it. And so we started developing the project and uh, we did the whole first issue you know, just everything scripted, penciled, inked, colored, lettered. And I sent it to Eric Stevenson and pitched him the idea. And Eric really liked it. So that's how we got the book set up and uh, started working on it. Wow, you covered a lot. And I do want to talk about the book. And I do want to talk about pollution. Because the book got me thinking about it. Because I've always been very aware of pollution and recycling and trying to do my best. But a couple of things I just want to go back to and ask you about. Because they caught my attention. Your first comics that you worked on were eight-page stories. What kind of stories were they? It was actually, not surprisingly, it was horror stuff. I did this, oh gosh, I did like a werewolf thing about these bootleggers in Appalachia. This was like back in 1994, 1995. Uh, and I know that Brian Ezzarello and Eduardo Rizzo did a thing like that as well. Moonshine. Yeah, Moonshine, which I loved. I love uh, I love their work. Brian's had a huge uh, effect on my on my writing process back then. I mean, he actually helped me with my Vertigo story because I, I went through so many drafts on it and I got stuck. And at the end of it, uh, my editor, Axel Alonso, actually sent it to Brian and Brian kind of like smoothed it out a little bit. So it was just, it was an incredible learning experience. But I mean, as far as the other stuff I did, uh, God, I'm trying to think. I did this, I had this thing that I did about a homicidal art critic that <laughs> murders like 
artists that he thinks are terrible and it was this very it was just it was really weird man uh, we actually did that twice we did a uh, my buddy and I that I did that with uh, Todd Corrignan he's actually a, um, a really great uh, painter and we did a we did a painted version of it on like black paper like it was all painted and then we did a pen and ink version after that of the same thing and I, I remember going to my first experience at at uh, San Diego was trying to go and like our fantasy was that we were going to like sell it to like slavery labor graphics and you know do it i mean that was like during that time when like johnny the homicidal maniac was coming out and you know it was that time when there was a lot of indie stuff going on there was a lot of black and white stuff some of the god some of the other stuff i'm trying to think i actually did an environmental i did an an eight pager with swamp thing that was like an environmental thing and it was all silent and uh and i did a a 16-page batman story with the joker uh, where the Joker started this UFO cult. And, uh, I mean, it was just crazy. <laughs> I, mean, I remember we, like, uh, my buddy that I did it with, his name is Andy Howell, and he he runs a, a, this really cool tattoo shop in Florida now. I had left SCAD at that time. This was, like, uh, 97. I remember Andy pitching it to DC, like this DC editor came down to SCAD and he like showed it to him. And then I don't think the editor really like knew what to make of it because it was just, you know, really crazy. And like, uh, the Joker was like carving an X into Batman's forehead and he had like really long hair and he was like, I mean, it was crazy. There was a point where he sang like this Mr. Rogers song. And I mean, it was, it was, it was weird. So, um, (laughs) but it was cool. I mean, that, you know, the thing that I've always loved about eight page stories and I, I really kind of miss that there's not more stuff being done like that is as a writer and as just as a creator, it really forces you to, uh, to trim the fat completely, you know, an eight page story, you know, you can't have, you know, everything has to have a purpose, you know, I mean, it's such a great form and, and when it's done well, it's just like, I love, uh, I remember uh, uh, Bruce Tim did this. Uh, actually, it may have been a ten pager, but it was it was uh, called it was a it was a short horror thing that he did called Red Red Romance. With I think Joe Lansdale wrote it. I'm not 100 percent sure about that, but about these serial killers who fall in love with each other, and it's just fantastic, you know. And I remember he also did another one called Two of a Kind in uh, Batman Black and White, this Two Face story. Where this doctor, this female psychiatrist, rehabilitates Two Face, and of course it all goes bad, and it was just like amazing, you know. And it was all these uh, either six or eight panel pages, you know, and it was all done like all these widescreen panels, and there's just like so much information, you know. And it really, the, those kind of comics, it really, uh, you see so when they're done well, you see such great condensed storytelling you don't have this like uh you know decompressed stuff you know where the issue is just a collection of scenes you know that's that's designed you know to be read as a trade you know when marvel started doing that stuff back in the uh the aughts or whatever you know whatever the last decade is is referred to but uh maybe it was the curriculum of uh scad at that time where they where you were you know in the classes you were doing lots of short works and this kind of thing so and it just seemed like, you know, starting out, it was just, you know, a more practical endeavor. 
than trying to do a full issue or a mini series or not, you know, or, or you know, I, I think sometimes uh, young creators fall into this trap of trying to do this big epic, you know, or or trying to do this giant project. You know, they they want to emulate the work that they love, you know, and do this big thing. But what you really need to figure out when you're starting out is how to tell a story. That's the really great thing about you know the eight page four. You only you don't have a lot of real estate. It really teaches you how to boil down you know what is essential you know and what's not. And that's what I understood about Dark Fang is that each issue is a very meaty issue. It's not decompressed. It's not big splash pages. Each issue has a lot there. It's funny you say that because I actually feel like the more that it goes on, the, the less. Like I'm, I'm kind of self-conscious about like, ah, oh, is there enough meat? And do I need like, you know, I'm, I'm being very mindful of that because I think about that, and because especially the first issue, which is very much a setup issue, is very there is more of a density. You know, I'm very much of the, you know, I'm, I'm kind of a snob with comics where, you know, I want a meaty issue, you know, and like I, I feel like, you know, and if I'm making comics, I, I really want to feel like I'm giving the reader their money's worth, giving them a story as opposed to just. A collection of seeds you know i know it's kind of an old thing but i kind of like how the old like if you read like uh you know the wolverine miniseries that uh claremont miller did they always do set up at the beginning and you know in every issue so it's like you know every issue is someone's first issue you know i kind of like having that element where if somebody picks up issue two or they pick up issue four and you know they don't have any idea there there's some they're going to get some context they're going to have something to hold on to and not have it just be well you know you know where they're just not really sure of what they read you know it, it should make them want to go and get the other issues because i i feel like a lot of my early experiences in comics that was the case i would have enough of an experience from what i was reading that it was satisfying but it also made me want to go and, and read more and get you know find what it, what it come before and and whatnot you know and it's and i also you know i really i love cliffhangers and i'm, I'm trying to you know have really cool cliffhangers in dark fang uh that will encourage you to to want to know what happens next so there's so much uh you know we're in, we're in a time of peak consumption and there's so many uh there's so many things that are that are there's so much competition for your eyeballs you know at, at any given moment you know whether it's the internet or streaming stuff or video games or whatever creators are really obligated to just command the audience's attention make them want to focus on that and not on something else yes and i read the first two issues i was fortunate to see a preview of those and each one stood alone very well i mean just in terms of getting into that issue i knew where i was like if these were separated by a month as they will be I wouldn't have any problem picking up who the main character is, what's going on. I wouldn't be like forget, you know, what I had read previously. Right, right. And, and a lot of books are written; they're wonderful. I love them, but they're more written for a trade because there's no introduction. Just like bam, here you are. Absolutely. Next, and yeah. I'm like, oh, I mean, where was I with this? I don't remember. I remember picking up uh, the new Secret Wars that Marvel put out. I picked up the first issue of it. Uh, mm -hmm. Because I love uh, – Esad Ribic is a friend of mine and I love his work. And I remember picking up the first issue and I had no idea what was going on. I was like, well, who are these people? What's going on? Like I have no – I just – and it just – and it's a shame because the art is really beautiful. But I just – I don't know what's going on. You know, so – and, uh, you know, maybe it's just not for me. Maybe it's 
it's just you have to be more ingrained in Marvel continuity to be able to appreciate it. I mean, maybe it was specifically designed that way. I don't know, you know, and I and I haven't read the rest of it. Maybe it was more grounded as it went on, but I, especially with a with a new title, I mean, you really have an obligation to just to ground the audience immediately, to not you know to not screw around and. Give them a meal. Give them a comics meal. You mentioned that you worked with uh, Victor Santos, and I talked to Victor a couple months ago, and I was just curious, what did you work on with him? I've worked. Well, I've done a couple projects with Victor. I did uh, a book called Zombie, that is about a samurai, a ninja, and a Zen monk teaming up to battle the undead in feudal Japan. So it's very much like a buddy action horror zombie thing. So it's black and white. So it's. Uh, it's very, at the time it was very much like a love letter to uh, I don't know if you're a fan of Shane Black, the writer director who did like uh, he did the Nice Guys most recently and he did Kiss Kiss Bang Bang and he wrote, he wrote Lethal Weapon and he did uh, the Last Boy Scout. He does these kind of uh, uh, buddy action things where there's a lot of banter and uh, it's very violent and uh, yeah that I did that with him and then I did another book uh, called Demon Cleaner. Uh, that is uh, kind of like John Wick with demons. Like you've got this guy, or, or Blade Runner with demons. You know, this guy who's basically like hunting demons. There's a uh, a restaurant that's this black market restaurant that uh, people could go to and basically eat. Like this sorcerer summons these summons and binds these demons and then cooks them. The patrons basically get to dine on this demonic flesh, and it gives them these enhanced abilities. And so you have this uh, this demonic restaurant situation, and and of course, you know everything goes wrong. These demons escape, and they're they murder everybody in the restaurant, and they're just kind of running around New York City. So the, this this character, the demon cleaner, is deployed to take out these demons, and it was very much kind of an homage to uh, Golgo Thirteen. And some of the uh, manga stuff. So Victor and I, we love stuff like that. We love John, you know, we love John Woo and all that gun fu stuff. So it's, yeah, it's just a little three issue thing that we did. This We actually did it in Spain and it was first released in Spain as a hardcover. And then we put it out in the States through Antarctic Press. So I have, I have some friends uh, over there. So I, yeah, I did a book with them. Yeah, it was fun. Now your little book, Dark Fang, and the title will explain itself as people read along a couple issues and they're going to find out why it's called dark fang vala is not your typical vampire Um, she's returned from the ocean floor after being there for 100 years one of the reasons why she left was because of of pollution in the ocean uh, oil actually what elements of traditional vampires in folklore did you decide to keep and why and which ones did you modernize and why um well i mean A lot of that was just unconscious and, you know, looking back at it now and actually um, it's interesting because some of the other people that have interviewed me have brought this up and and kind of called my attention to it. Uh, I didn't really realize it when I was doing it, but it's very influenced by Dracula and there's a lot of – there's definitely a lot of motifs that are taken from from Dracula as far as uh, like her minion is very much like a Renfield type character. You have – there's kind of a twist on, you know, the whole story of Jonathan Harker being captured by Dracula and his brides, and you know, so I kind of did a, a twist on that with with Vala, um, you know, as far as her her origin. Um, you know, I, I mean, a lot of that was just, uh, I mean, it was just sort of a discovery process of the character, and 
you know, I've always uh, had this idea about if uh, if I was a vampire, I would just I would go into the ocean and I would explore the ocean. You don't have to breathe, you know, and you don't have to worry about pressure. And, you know, you have enhanced senses you can see in the dark and you can shape shift. So why not? There's all these parts of the ocean that are that are unmapped and unexplored. And I've just always been really fascinated by that. Um, probably from watching The Abyss way too many times when I was a teenager. But I just, I, I, you know, it, it really just comes down to just, uh, I just thought it was cool. <laughs> There's really not uh, anything loftier than that. But, but, it, but, it, but it was a good, at the same time, it was a good vehicle for getting into, getting into the themes, the later conflict with, uh, with the fossil fuel industry. You know, it just seemed like a, a good way to, to, uh, to get into that to have her character change. Well, I do like that you tie into the Dracula legend. He's, he's in there. And also, uh, this vampire is a very seductive and sexy vampire, much like some of the famous vampires of film, you know, Christopher Lee. Sure. He's yeah. a very charming individual in a way, very alluring and captivating. Same thing with Bela Lugosi. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that that's, you know, a lot of the appeal, I think that a lot of the enduring appeal of Dracula is that people like to fantasize about being Dracula and they like to fantasize about being, they like to fantasize that they're attractive and they're alluring and they're magnetic and they're able to control people. And so, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I definitely wanted to um, pay homage to, the, you know, to, to cut, uh, to have a vampire that would be new, but was also cut from the cloth of the traditional portrayal in some ways, you know, but I wanted to update that as well. Dark Fang, a, a lot of uh, the major theme of Dark Fang is appetite. When I started developing it, you know, all of these ideas started coming into orbit around the theme of appetite, you know, things like, you know, addiction to technology and, you know, addiction to pornography that is enabled through the internet and, uh, and the oil industry. You know, the situation that we're in with, with the environment is definitely due to our culture's appetite for oil. So, I mean, all of these things just kind of gravitated around the character and they, it just seemed to all kind of fit together in a cool way. It's a fun read. It is not a preachy book. Absolutely. Yeah, well, I, yeah, I did not. I absolutely do not want to do that at all. You know, I think it's important for people to be educated about what's going on, but that's not really my role. I'm not a scientist, you know, I'm not, you know, I, there's a few people that they may look at this and roll their eyes and think that this book is just kind of a, you know, a lecture on how to leave less of a carbon f footprint and whatnot, but that's, that's not what it is at all. I mean, Dark Fang is first and full, foremost, a th it's a ride, you know, it's a piece of entertainment. Uh, it's definitely not a lecture at all. I'm wondering how do you as an individual, try to do your part to curtail climate change what little you can do as one person but and also how do you try to avoid technological addictions well i think that you know i think that in both of those cases what you're talking about is mindfulness you know and just being aware of i don't have a car you know i use public transportation i i recycle i you know just try to do the little things that I can as, as a single person to just, you know, do my part. And uh, I mean, not really that much. I mean, there's, there's not, there's only so much that I, that one person can do, but I think that a lot of it just comes down to just being aware of what's going on and being educated and not, you know, we have a tendency in this country to ignore problems until they get really bad. 
And I think to a certain extent that, you know, you know, that's probably what's going to that's probably what's going to eventually happen with climate change to uh, really create, you know, to really create hardline measures in our government uh, to change what's happening. But uh, yeah, I think it, I think it really just comes down to just being mindful and being aware. And as far as technological addiction, uh, I, you know, I have a smartphone like everybody else, you know, I. You know, I have a Twitter account. I have a Facebook account. I have an Instagram. You know, I look at these things every day. Um, I don't post a lot of content. Uh, I'm not on them constantly. Uh, I try not to be. My job is that, you know, I'm in front of a computer all the time. So, there, you know, to me, that's just, uh, you know, that's the dominant screen, you know. So, I, you know, I spend a lot of time uh, or I try to spend as much time as I can interacting with the world in a way that does not involve technology. You know, I take public tra- transportation. I walk around a lot. I'm constantly having to rely on my body to get to where I need to go, you know, when I need to go shopping or, and, and when it's all, which is also a really great luxury as a, as a writer, you know, I think it's really important. You know, I, I grew up, I grew up, I live in Chicago. I grew up in Dallas and for the first part of my life, you know, I, I was in this car-based society. I, I was in a place where you had to have a vehicle to get around. You know, it's Dallas is not a city where you have, uh, you know, street life and street traffic. And uh, when I moved to, to New York, that was really my first experience with that kind of, you know, environment. And I immediately figured out, well, this is much better. You know, this is a much better quality of life, you know, because it's, because it's bringing you in contact with all of these different types of people that you normally wouldn't interact with if you're in your car, you know, or, you know, or if you're, your only experience being around other people is going to the mall or going to a big box store or, or going to the movie theater or whatever. So, and they, they talk about how there's two Americas and, and I think, uh, those are two, very different experiences the people that that live and it's a shame that there aren't more major cities with street life you know and where people are able to to interact with each other and because there's just there's so much beauty in uh when you're in an environment like that and you just you know even just having these uh these small transactions with strangers are just, you know, uh, those are things that I remember more than, uh, you know, what happened in this issue of X-Men or what happened on, you know, this episode of The Walking Dead, you know. I mean, to me, there's just so much more value in that kind of uh, direct experience with other human beings. For my part, uh, breaking down both of those with uh, pollution and garbage and such. I've always been very mindful of it, especially since we started recycling in this country. Like I think about everything that I'm consuming. How long is it going to be in existence right. long after I'm gone? So I do this little thought experiment. Well, what if I kept all my garbage? Like what if I just kept it in my garage? How much have I? How much have I produced in a lifetime? And I think about everybody doing that. So I'm compelled. It's crazy. Yeah. yeah. I mean- I think about stuff like that sometimes too, and it's just—it's really insane to just think about the level of consumption and to think about how reliant we are for oil—not just for you know, not just for fuel, mm-hmm. but just all these other all these other stupid per- things that we use it for that are just—it's just pointless. You know, we don't—we don't need to be doing that. You know, and it's just—it's insane. You know, it is starting. It is starting to shift. There is a, you know, but it, but on such a, a small level, 
you know, I started working on this book way before the election. This, you know, I don't want to get into a big politics thing, but obviously this isn't really how I, you know, I wanted things to go. Uh, and it, it almost kind of makes Dark Fang more relevant and more timely and, uh, you know, uh, more of a catharsis for what's going on right now, which, you know, as I said, it's not really my preference, but here we are. Well, the book's going to touch upon politics and propaganda denying climate change. And that seems very timely because now we have a word for this, uh, alternative facts. And sure. as, a, as a, an intelligent person, does that make your blood boil when people are trying, politicians are trying to poo-poo some of this stuff and say, yeah, it's... I think it's a disgrace. You know, I think that, uh, I think that the way that scientific consensus has been politicized is it's an embarrassment, you know, it's, and it's a disgrace. You know, uh, yeah, it, it, it makes me furious. Even though we are in the situation that we're in now, there's, you know, you have the majority of people, they recognize that this is real. So there's this disconnect with, you know, you know, it's, 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 it's really a paradox that we're in this situation because we have the people in charge. They just, you know, they don't want to talk about it. They think it's bullshit. Um, they're very, they're completely dismissive of it. They're apathetic. Several years from now, I don't know, a few years from now, 10 years from now, we're going to, you know, those same people are going to act like they were on board from, you know, they were always on board, you know, mm -hmm. and it's going to be, it's going to be, an, it's going to be, you know, people, that attitude is going to be even more shunned than it is now. You know, it's, we're going to look back at that and just, it's going to be like people that thought the earth was flat. Yeah. Well, people don't like the idea of having to, make a sacrifice to uh, change the way things are because we've been sure. doing things a certain yeah. way since like the 50s. And um, when, your, your book was fun. It is fun and it's great to read, but it made me think about some of the problems and what the facts are behind them. And I'm not going to stay on a soapbox, but just some things I checked into just for fun. I remember there was this floating pile of plastic garbage in the Pacific, about the size of Texas. Right. Yeah. Uh, and they discovered it like in the mid 80s. And I thought it was big pieces of plastic. What it turns out, though, is this stuff is broken down, photodegraded, and it's very, very small. You can't see it by satellite. Ships can't see it unless they're close. But the problem is that there are aquatic life eating the stuff Oh wow! on the upper water column, and then something's eating them, and it's winding up in the food chain. So we're wow. consuming this stuff, which oh is really God. scary. More, It's not just floating, you know, and... And I looked at some of the stats, and there uh, has been 9.1 billion tons of plastic produced since 1950, and 7 billion tons are no longer being used. So only 9% has been recycled ever, and 12% incinerated, which is great because it goes in the air. Yeah, right. And another crazy fact I found, this is from the United Nations Ocean Conference. They, they estimate that by 2050, this will probably still be in our lifetime <laughs> if we're lucky, right. uh, the ocean will contain more weight in plastic than fish. Oh my God! Yeah, that's that's really frightening stuff. Um, yeah, I think I'm gonna have to have a drink after I get off. The, <laughs> get off the, I'm gonna have to have a couple of drinks. I mean, I mean, yeah. there's there's more, but you know, 90% of all seabirds consume the plastic, and there's eight million pounds of new plastic that enters into the ocean each year. You know, from docks and places along the yeah. coast. You know, if you're inland, you don't really notice it, but you have to think about the future of. Our children, their children, uh, what kind of world yeah. are we leaving? It's just – it's very disturbing and it's not something people can just kind of put off and say, well, you know. Yeah, it's not. I mean one of the positives though is I think that you know we're in this time 
we're in this time of peak, time of peak consumption, but we're also in this this time where uh, I mean, communication is just so incredible now, and and uh, it seems like uh, so many young people are so aggressive about what's going on, you know, and they they see how serious this is and that it's going to affect them. And they're one of the things that, that America has been really great at over the years is innovation and, you know, our freedoms, you know, which are sometimes abused. They, you know, we have this incredible imagination as a country and there is a part of me that is optimistic about that collective imagination, engineering solutions to help with the situation. You know, I mean, obviously, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't do anything, but I mean, you just look at, you know, you look at the innovations and you look at, you look at just what's happened in the last uh, 10, 15 years, you know, with technology. And I don't know, maybe, you know, maybe we'll be able to, you know, to come up with, with uh, things that we can't even conceptualize right now to, to help the situation. I can't really think about it too much because it, it's debilitating. You know, when you when you think about the stats and you think about um, how screwed we are at this point, you know, there's really going to need to be, uh, you know, I'm like, you know, hurry up, Mueller. You know, I'm just constantly like thinking about the investigation. And I don't even know if that's really going to have, you know, how much of an effect that's even really going to have. But, uh, yeah, it's a it's a crazy time. And I and I really one of the things that's kind of been amazing to me is that I just don't really see a lot of uh, art really talking about what's going on right now, you know? And it, it was actually kind of a relief to go and see this new movie, Mother, which I don't know if you've seen, but it's it's about climate change. And it's really one of the first things that I've seen that, I mean, the movie is very much a punch in the face, but it's really about what's going on right now. And I really think that, yeah, I think we need to be punched in the face about this, you know? And I don't necessarily, I mean, Dark Fang, I'm not really, um, presenting a viable solution but i just think that i think that this needs to be more in the consciousness than it is because it's not going away i mean we're going to be dealing with this for the rest of our lives and it's only going to get more serious and more severe and more dire and i mean we just you look at this summer i mean this is i mean every summer is the hottest summer on record you know we had uh I mean, I know that um, the East Coast gets a lot, you know, you basically get the weather that we get a day or two later, but uh, we had, we had a heat wave in September, you know, we had 90, we had like uh, seven or eight or nine consecutive 90 degree days, you know, when it's supposed to be, it's supposed to be fall, it's supposed to be like high 60s. And it's, you know, it feels like it's, you know, 4th of July weekend. Yeah. For nine days. So it's just, that's the, that's the new normal. I mean, it's just, you know, this weird weather stuff is, is only going to get weirder. And this is, this is the new normal. The point you made, which is very important. We have to be more mindful, bring it into people's consciousness. And my hope, uh, since the younger generation is so passionate about these topics and will hopefully drive some change and innovation, we have great technology. We keep building upon it. At some point, someone's going to find a way to make it profitable. And that's the trick. That is one of the major things is just is just, you know, is the monetization of these technologies and people like Tesla, people like uh, Elon Musk, you know, and this this kind of uh, people that are, you know, making money off of innovation, you know, rather than just these old these old dinosaurs, you know, these old fossils that are just, you know, repeating 
you know, that are just trying to go back to these antiquated systems, you know, that just aren't, you know, they're not working anymore. The coal industry is dead. It's gone. It's, you know, it's done. You know, those jobs aren't going to come back. That's it. It's over. I think one of the problems that America is, you know, the old, you have this old American idea of, you know, you have the same job your whole life and that just doesn't really work anymore. You know, I mean, my parents, they had several career changes over the course of their working lives. You know, they had to adapt. They had to do different things. It's, uh, you know, my dad was a teacher and then he became a uh, defense, co- you know, he worked as an, uh, a tech writer in the defense industry. And then he went to work uh, doing software, you know, uh, writing for software and this kind of thing. And, and then went back to teaching, you know, at the end of his life. And uh, so th- there's just, you know, we have to get over this rigidity, you know, where you just, you're not going to have, it's not going to be one thing. Uh, it's, it's, it's really one of the, one of the themes of, of life and of, and is just change, you know, life is always changing and we're always changing. And the more resistant we are to that, the more problems we're going to have, you know, and I think you can look at that on a macro level and on a micro level as well. Change is the one constant we can expect. And I think is probably one of the most important things you can do to survive and have a good job is to keep your skills up and to learn new skills. If you don't, you're dead. I mean, you don't want to be a dinosaur. For sure. Yeah. I mean, it's only... I mean, the job market is just completely, you know, it's completely different from what it was 10 years ago or, you know, and it's just going to get that's in 10 years from now. I mean, who knows what that's going to look like? It's a totally different thing. I mean, you're seeing, you're more and more, you're seeing, uh, you know, these big retail stores shuttering. I read something, you know, recently about Toys R Us going bankrupt. Yes. You know, that was unheard of when I was a kid. When I was a kid, Toys R Us was like this mecca. It was like this. You know, this just this incredible place that you would go to, and just so this idea that it would be shutter is just, I mean, it's just amazing to me. And it's not like the internet's putting them out of business. That's part of it. But I, what I heard a lot of it was just the way they haven't changed their business model, the way the stores laid out, how you get people to come there for different experiences and get them to stick for a while. They just don't have a reason to go. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, it. it I think that uh, you know, it's really interesting. Amazon. Uh, opened a you know a brick and mortar bookstore here, and it's really cool. I mean, I've been over to it a few times, and uh, and it's a very different kind of thing. The only products that they have are are, are things that are you know have a certain uh, rating on Amazon. You know, it's like four stars or or four four and a half stars or what I can't remember what the, the metric is, but um, and everything is uh, you know like a lot of the stuff that they have is what's popular in the city with customers here so it's like all they have all these you know these these uh you know these metrics and it's just it's crazy it's just like the site where it says you might like they know what people in that area like right yeah exactly yeah and it's all so everything is is uh you know is working off of that off of this data you know rather than just these kind of traditional like you know you have a manager looking at at a an order form and just kind of making these dishes, you know, like, like a lot of comic book stores do, you know, like where you're just, you know, you're, you're kind of going through previews and deciding what you want to buy. I mean, it would be really interesting to see, you know, comics kind of evolve past that. I mean, I think the comics probably have to be bigger than it is um, to sustain something like that, but it's, it's interesting. But even with comics you have, you know, with digital distribution, it's totally changed how so many people read comics. So, I mean, it's, you know, it's fascinating. Before we move on to some fun questions that I have for all my guests, I want to ask you a, a couple of things about your 
artist in the book, Kelsey Shannon. Now, have you met Kelsey in person? We both used to live in Dallas, uh, just coincidentally, uh, when we were when we worked on this book, Bastard Samurai, together, and uh, we met for the first time at this. Uh, I think it was called Project Acon. It's uh, this really popular and cosplay show in Dallas, and uh, we sat there and we literally like laid out the first scene together, and that was kind of the beginning of our. Uh, you know, we have this very hands-on collaboration where. You know, we've we have the benefit of having been friends for, you know, since about 2001, you know, so we've had this really long dialogue about storytelling, you know, it's just sort of ongoing. And we're constantly talking about art and talking about movies and talking about animation and talking about uh, comics and, uh, you know, going into this project, we have this you know, this relationship, you know, and the book really, that the book really benefits from. I think Kelsey is one of the, you know, one of the most innovative color colorists in the industry. And a lot of colorists, he's sort of like, for a long time, he's been very much like this artist's artist. He was a member of Gaijin Studios for uh, for a while, uh, working with Adam Hughes and Brian Stelfreeze and the other guys that are there and Cully Hamner. He's, he's really just this incredible talent. I mean, you know, he works, you know, uh, all digital. You know, I was never really, really conscious of color until I, tar- until I started working with him, you know, and it really seeing what he was doing with the computer, it just kind of like opened this door in my brain about just thinking about color, thinking about visual atmosphere and, you know, being very specific about those things, you know, really bemoaning that there are so many comics that don't do that, you know, or in the past. How I think I think that comics are getting better about that now. But um, I write very specific to him visually, you know. I mean, all of the visuals, everything, it all starts in the script, you know. It's not just an open thing, you know, where I just kind of point him in a direction and just let him do whatever he wants. So I mean, uh, it's very, you know, we we talk about things uh, in depth uh, even before uh, scripting. You know, and uh, so I basically like like when we're doing an issue, I'll I'll basically pitch him the issue, you know, like over Skype. And if I can get him to laugh, I usually that's usually my goal. He's the first audience, you know, so I'm thinking about everything in terms of him and how he'll react, how he'll receive it. You know, and then I go to work on the script. We usually toss that back and forth a few times and uh, and then I continue. I'll continue to refine things um, as far as dialogue and everything, you know, off of the off of the finished art. And you know, we're constantly we we worked pretty far ahead on the first arc of this book, so we've really had the benefit of of time and space and distance and being able to to go back into it and uh, and refine it more and more and more. And that was really one of the things that I learned from screenwriting and just from my experiences in, in screenwriting is just, you know, not being afraid to just do as many drafts as it takes, you know, and, and you know, sometimes you have to do 10 drafts or 15 drafts or whatever, and really just putting more, more time into, into, you know, a lot of the writing comes out of the rewriting, you know, and the refining, having a really detailed plan, but then also being open to, imp- to improvisation in the moment and coming up with things on the fly, you know, and so sometimes some of the best ideas come that way, you know, they'll just be very spontaneous and you, you deliberate over things, um, incessantly, but then that will create a spark that just kind of comes in the moment. But Kelsey, you know, so everything in, in Fang is, is written for Kelsey specifically and for his passions, you know, Kelsey loves to draw women. We're constantly thinking about, 
what Vala is wearing and we're, you know, we're like, I'll go on Pinterest and I'll, I'll find like this fashion stuff or I'll, you know, I'll screen cap stuff on Snapchat. I follow fashion models on the internet. So I'm constantly like just hoarding like little, uh, design things, you know, and just little atmospheric ideas for visuals in the background. And just we're both huge Tony and Ridley Scott fans and the way that both of those directors use location as a character, you know, in the story. So we're constantly I mean, it's like we're completely obsessed with stuff like that with just, you know, trying to come up with uh, visuals that we haven't seen before, rather than just settling for um, Something that we, I mean, it drives us crazy when we look at comics and we see, you know, like a double page spread of people sitting in a booth at a diner talking. And it's just, it just, it's just such a wasted opportunity, you know, like a, a splash page should be like an exclamation point. You know, you're taking a moment and you're putting it up on a pedestal. So the, I, I think that you have an obligation to try to engineer a visual moment that people haven't seen before. You know, that's really, that's the beauty of comics. You have that you have that freedom to do anything, but but you have the responsibility to try to, to, to dig deep and do something new. I want people to be able to flip through the book, just off of that, be engaged, you know, without even reading it, without just looking at the images and have the, the images work independent of the writing, you know, to where there's some sense of just visual storytelling on its own. Well, it's a very solid partnership. And this project aside, is there any dream project? We have another thing that uh, we have a dinosaur comic that we've done. That's we've done one installment of. It's completely finished. We're kind of trying to decide what we want to do with that right now. There, yeah, there's some other stuff, but it's just you know, my dad is saying one snake at a time. You know, um, <laughs> so it's just and and sometimes you know we do have a tendency to get ahead of ourselves. You know, when we were younger and you know, shoot for the mood and just try to be, you know, try to do too much stuff. And it's really important to just focus on this. We both really have an interest in making films. And, you know, Kelsey is very interested in directing and he's done some shorts. And, but again, we just, we have to steer it, you know, back to comics. And, you know, right now we both have this obligation to Fang, you know, to just try to make that the best that we can. And, uh, but yeah, we definitely want to do more stuff. So it's, you know, and I, and I hope that we have the opportunity um, to do more. And Dark Fang comes out on November 15th. And I'm not even going to ask, is this a limited or ongoing? I don't care. I just want a good story. <laughs> you know? <laughs> well, no, it, it, is, uh, it is an ongoing. I mean, right now, I have the whole second arc. The whole second arc is already written. Uh, I'm going to be going back and, and revising it. But uh, right now, I'm looking at like four arcs of five issues, so maybe 20 issues. I mean, it may, it may extend beyond that. I'm not sure. But you know, we'll just have to see how it goes. We'll have to see how it sells. And, uh, you know, if we haven't murdered each other, uh, you know, yeah. So that's, that's just, that's my hope. So I'd like four volumes or like a gigantic, gigantic hardcover that you can use to murder somebody. So. <laughs> well, here are my, uh, fun questions for all my guests. There's, there's three. Uh, first one's easy. What do you like to do for rest and relaxation when you're not working on your book or writing? I like to uh, do yoga and I like to meditate. Oh, all right. Very good. Yeah, I do like uh, – I don't really know how to um, how to word it. I, I've been experimenting with uh, you know Hinduism with a number of years. I'll do like uh, what's called like a puja to uh, Ganesh. 
like I make offerings and I recite mantras and this kind of thing. And this is actually um, is something I've been, I've always been really interested in. I kind of get, I, I kind of have an interest in uh, occultism and stuff like that. That's a whole other ball of wax. But uh, I think that after my negative experience with Hollywood, I felt like I needed to fortify my creative efforts with uh, spiritual power. <laughs> like I, so I've, I've kind of, Fang is actually my first project where I'm kind of like, I'm trying to fortify that uh, with some of these, uh, what I would refer to as like ancient technology. Um, things like uh, things like Hinduism, things like meditation, mm-hmm. uh, things like making offerings. And I just, you know, I, and I love it. I mean, it's a, it, it's a very personal thing. It's, it's, uh, it's something I don't like to talk about too much because I think there's kind of a, um, in our society, we don't really encourage talk. Uh, it's very kind of uh, people dismi- you know, are very dismissive or they just kind of like uh, they like to put labels on things. Uh, but I find these uh, these endeavors to be very rewarding and uh, not only for my own personal you know, betterment as a human being, but just helping in the realizing of my goals and getting things done. So uh, I really encourage all creative people to to pursue that, uh, to cultivate their own spirituality. Um, I've been practicing yoga off and on uh, for almost 20 years. I don't do it as – I'm not as diligent about it as I used to be, um, but I still try to do it, and uh, it's just incredible. I mean it, I think if I could tell my teenage self one thing, it would be go and take a yoga class right now. <laughs> don't smoke – stop smoking cigarettes. Stop smoking pot. <laughs> Go do yoga. So it's, I mean, just the, the benefits are just incredible. And especially uh, to the creative, to the creative mind. I mean, I, you know, it's just, it's amazing. I mean, I honestly, sometimes I think like, how is this legal? You know, how is this not regulated? That people have no idea like how amazing this stuff is. And you don't have to put, you know, you don't have to be a vegan. You don't have to, you know, you don't have to change you know, for years I would, uh, you know, I used to listen to like doom metal while I was doing yoga. So it's like, you don't, you know, there's not a set, you know, there's not a set way, you know, and I would do meditation listening to like black metal and stuff. It's just, I mean, that's, you know, not really the the proper way to do it. You know, if you go and you talk to a, you know, a a guru or whatever, they're going to, Oh, they're going to tell you, Oh, don't do that. You know, but uh, yeah, I think these things are are incredibly valuable. You know, especially as I get older, and I'm very mindful of my. I'm more and more mindful of my health, and uh, you know, I think that these are really um, very important endeavors to invest time in. Oh, so absolutely. That's what, I, that's what I do to. I guess. I guess you could say that's what I do to relax. Sometimes I play video games. Okay. But not very much. <laughs> Usually, when I play video games, I start having anxiety about. You know, writing and uh, you know, thinking like I remember I bought uh, I bought the new Mass Effect earlier this year, and I sat there and I started playing it, and I had this sense of I had this sense of how oceanic this was going to be, and I immediately started thinking, you know, I, I should just go write it. I should write a new movie. I can write it. I can write another movie in the time that that I can invest in this game for the next month. You know, I can have a whole new thing, you know, so I, so I put it away and I went and wrote a movie, but I'm, I'm very much like a casual gamer. You know, I think I play maybe like an hour a week, maybe I don't even know if that much. So, but, uh, but I spend a lot of time, uh, watching stuff, watching TV, watching movies, 
but I, I really consider that. I mean, it's it's pleasure, but it's also a part of the job um, to just constantly be, you know, and, and reading and just studying to always be sharpening your sword, you know, and keeping it sharp. And there's a lot, but there, but that's a pleasurable. And, and I love doing that. It's you know, there's some movies I just watch over and over and over again, and I love it. It's a it's a pleasurable thing for sure. So especially now that it's getting into October, it's like um, I've kind of been running late. Usually I'm watching a lot more horror stuff at this point. So especially now that it's now that it's Friday the Thirteenth, I, I feel like I really, especially tonight, I have to. You know, I, I feel an obligation to. Uh, to get down with some some horror so miles i hear you i have my dvds and stuff on tv i recorded that i want to watch between now and halloween and yeah i i, I don't do enough of it but my hat's off to you with the meditation because i do some i've even worked on some mantras i have an instructor that's taught me part of the heart sutra so Great. i actually I, at times i don't do enough of it but at times i will practice it in japanese actually so and it does work i mean your body you do get mindful mm-hmm, about the it's tension incredible. yeah you realize how tense you are until you learn to relax every muscle in your body your head your ears everything relaxes that's really you don't realize how tense you are but yeah yeah that's a great uh way to rest and relax it's amazing stuff and, it, and it's important not to beat up on yourself about not doing it and you know i mean i do it i mean i do it all the time i'm constantly you know I am nowhere near as disciplined as I should be, you know, but it's, uh, it's a process, you know, it's tough. Life's complicated right now. We're, yes. you know, this is a, this is a very strenuous time. This is a tense time we're in right now in this country. So it's really important. And, and I think that makes meditation even more important. My second question, do you have, if you were stuck on a deserted island, is there an island book, the one book you'd want to have with you to read? Well, I would probably choose Carl Jung's Red Book, mostly because I want to read it. I've been putting it off for years. And it's also so big that I think it could also double as a weapon. <laughs> so in case cannibals appeared in the middle of the night or whatever. So I I don't know. I'm you know, I'm really bad about best best of stuff. Um you know, I don't know. I mean right now I'm reading a Richard Mathis short story collection. So I'd I'd uh I'd probably take that just because uh, I've read about three or four stories so far. It's so great. I don't know. Uh, it's tough for me to, to to narrow it down to one thing. I mean, if it, if it was comics, I'd probably say uh, probably Grendel Tales, Devils and Deaths by Darko Machan and Edvin Bukovic, which is probably my favorite comic of all time. Are you familiar with that book? I've read some Grendel, uh, probably the first arc, but I have not read that one. Yeah, well, it's uh, it's it's incredible. They, but it, but it's probably for personal reasons. I mean, they they were these uh, Croatian comic creators, and they made this book uh, in the early '90s during the uh, you know the Bosnian uh, Croatian conflict, and uh, it actually Eddie, the artist, uh, he was able to avoid going to war because he got this job with Dark Horse through uh, Jamie Rich. They basically sent a uh, pitch in the mail to Jamie uh, for the book, and that's how they that's how they got it. And uh, it's a really great comic about war, and it's just – it's beautifully – I mean, the art Eddie's artwork is just absolutely gorgeous. And he was actually a friend of mine. He got me – he was one of the reasons that I was able to get this job uh, at Vertigo. And shortly after that, he passed away uh, of a brain tumor. He was only 30 years old. Oh, so wow. incredibly, incredibly sad. Yeah, it's just an incredible talent. So, yeah, I, uh, 
if you haven't checked it out, go go and pick up Weird War Tales special from uh, uh, April of 2000. It's got his last work in it. It's it's got a it's an eight page story called Prayer Prayer to the Sun. It's quite quite amazing. Yeah, it's actually it's online too. Yeah, I can I'll actually see if I can find a link and I'll send it to you. Oh, it's, cool. Uh, yeah, I'll check out Grendel because I was thinking Matt Wagner Grendel, which I've read, not the one you're referring to. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's not. I, I mean, I like I like uh, Matt Wagner's Grendel, and you know, I, I really like War Child. I love Pat McCowan's work on that. Uh, but just personally, I, I mean, it was. I remember buying that book, and it was just really. It was so sophisticated, and it really opened my eyes to what uh, what comics could be, and it, it kind of came out at the tail end of this period where there was just all this, you know, you had the, the incredible Batman stuff in the late eighties and then you had Sin City and you had Hellboy starting up. So it was like this really, you know, in the early nineties, you know, there's just like this really potent time, you know, Rocketeer. Uh, I mean, there was just this, like, there was so much great stuff coming out during that time. So it was, it, it was kind of one of the, you know, one of the last things to come out during that period. So, and I think it's just as, uh, just as much a classic as all those other books. My final question: Do you have a beverage or drink of choice when you're relaxing? Um. Well, I do enjoy drinking beer, uh, and I also like drinking water. So because you can't drink beer all the time. <laughs> no, <so>. right. <laughs> um, I drink a lot of water, especially when I'm working. Uh, I really like a beer in Wisconsin called Horty Goat Blood. Oh, it's really good. Yeah, it's fantastic. It's got a really evocative name too. So it's uh, yeah. I don't know. There's a lot of I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of really great. Uh, I'm really spoiled here in Chicago because there's all these like ridiculous like breweries all over the place. Uh, but I mean, lately I've been drinking a lot of Becks, um, which I just I don't know. It's not really very interesting, but it's just a really good solid beer. So yeah, I have been known to have a couple of Becks in the evening hours. So I'm not really a spirits guy. I actually, I mean, if we're talking favorites, you know, forget all that. Champagne is definitely like, that's like my number one, but I, that's usually just for, or Prosecco, which is uh, a little cheaper. Um, but I usually get a little crazy when I drink that stuff. So I don't, <laughs> I, I don't drink it too often. So it's more of a special occasion, but I'll definitely be having a, a bottle of Prosecco when Dark Fang number one ships. So. I was going to say, there's a reason to celebrate when that ships, and I think it's going to do very well. Uh, well, I, I, I appreciate your saying that. I hope, yeah, I hope that uh, the book was really written as a catharsis uh, for me, for what's been going on, and just the frustration that I feel. And I, and I hope that it will be a catharsis for other people, too, because I think a lot of people are really upset about what's going on and what continues to go on. And they should be. And I think it'll help increase the mindfulness in an entertaining way without being preachy. Hopefully, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. We'll see. All right. Well, Miles, thank you so much for this meaty podcast and for a great interview. Absolutely my pleasure. Yeah, I really I enjoyed uh, speaking with you. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you for listening to this episode of Creator Talks. The podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Podbean, and YouTube. If you like what you hear, please rate and review on iTunes and Stitcher. Don't miss a single episode each Thursday. Subscribe, it's free. A new interview will be available each week, and sometimes there'll be a second, maybe even a third interview that week. You can send me feedback and comment on social media. 
I can be reached at Creator Talks Pod. That's at Creator Talks Pod on Facebook and Twitter. I'm also available on Instagram, Creator Talks Pod. There I will post pictures while I'm on location, as well as my Saturday Silver Age or Older and Sunday Bronze Age Spotlight comics from my personal collection. Don't forget to visit my website, creatortalks.com. There I have listed the latest episode on the homepage, plus a playlist of all the episodes to date that you can listen to online or download. In addition, on the site, I'll be posting my recommended reading picks, as well as written interviews with creators. Also on my YouTube channel are video interviews with creators on location at comic conventions and elsewhere. I know you have a lot of entertainment to choose from and a lot of podcasts to choose from as well. And I thank you for making the time to listen to this one, your best source for comic book writers, artists, and creators. There are more interviews in the works, and you never know who it might be. It is my distinct honor and privilege to speak to these creators and bring you those interviews each week. I'd like to thank my executive co-producer, who makes this possible, Mrs. Calloway. That's all for now. For Creator Talks, I'm Christopher Calloway. Until next time.